Yes, welcome back to another beautiful edition of uh, uh, the history of modern Europe uh, from 1789 to 1981. Uh, I am Halim Saliu, the one you call SOG. Uh, and I told you earlier on that uh, uh, today, we're, uh, on this edition, we'll be talking about uh, the French Revolution of, uh, the 19th, of 1789. And without wasting much of our time, uh, if you have any questions from uh, from the previous uh, episode, you can always get uh, reach out to me on plus two three four eight one three two five nine six 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 six. And um, we had already talked about the general survey. Of, uh, of the years between 1789 to 1981 and straight we go to the French Revolution of 1789 and we can talk about it without looking at the causes. Now the French Revolution in 1789 is one of the great events of human history. It deeply affected men's ideas and conduct, and conduct for many generations. Now, within the space of six years, that's talking about 1789 to 1795, the monarchy and the old privileged aristocracy were swept aside and a new state was created. New men arose to power from classes who had enjoyed little or no political influence under the monarchy. Now, merchants and lawyers became leading politicians. The French army was completely reorganized with promotion from the ranks. The peasants took over the land of the nobility and the Catholic Church and St. Louis XVI and his queen Maria Antoniette went to the the guillotine. Naturally, uh, this upheaval is one of the great states of Europe uh, it's one of the great states of Europe had prof- uh, uh, had profound effects on other other countries. Now, to the serfs and poorer classes of Europe, the revolution of 1789 came in time to represent their hope of better things. While naturally, to the privileged classes themselves and the kings and princes. Who supported them in rip, uh, uh, who supported them it represented the horrifying specter of uh, their own future destruction now in every country of Europe and America the impact of the revolution created hope enthusiasm hatred or fear according to men's position in society and their intellectual convictions. Now, why the revolution took the course it did after it had broken out in an extremely difficult question is an extremely difficult question. And um, historians are by no means uh, have by no means agreed on this. On the other hand, there is a fairly general uh, agreement on the causes of a discontent in France, which led to the actual outbreak in 
89. One thing is certain, uh, is certain conditions in a society have to be very bad indeed before men in any large numbers will undertake its overthrow by violence. Men will not risk everything for nothing. If we consider French society in the 18th century, uh, beginning with the peasants and moving up from the middle class, the nobility and the clergy, and finally to the king and his officials, we shall see that, uh, that uh, uh, we shall see that conditions were very unhealthy. Now let's look at these conditions uh, that made it so difficult, and the people couldn't bear it. That led to uh, which led to the revolution. Now looking at the uh, French, the condition of the French society before the revolution. Uh, let's look at the, uh, at the the peasantry. Now the peasantry uh, at the time of the revolution, uh, the peasantry numbered about twenty three million in a total population of 25 million. Now, in some districts of France, the peasants were still serfs in the strict sense of the word being bought and sold with the land when it changed hands. Now, get this straight. Now, the peasants, the peasantry uh, numbered about 23 million in a total population of 25 million. Now, moving further, these serfs numbered about 1 million. Another section of the peasantry where the um, um, uh, metayer uh, tenants who shared both the profit and the losses of cultivation with their landlords. Others owned small patches of land from which they scrapped a, a very bare living, a very bare living. Uh, uh, I I I really do not know uh, which word to use, but a, a very bare living indeed. But the great uh, majority of the peasants held land from the nobility and paid various forms of rent for it. Now, let's look at the burdens of the peasantry. Now, let's look at the direct taxation. That was the, may, that was the first burden. Uh, well, that's, that should be the first burden we should look at, the direct taxation. It was above all the weight of taxation which prevented the existence of a, content, of a content, uh, contented and, uh, and prosperous co uh, countryside. Firstly, there were the taxes paid directly to the state's treasury and collected by government officials. Now, the, ta uh, the, ta uh, the talay uh, was a tax imposed in some district on land, but in most cases was imposed on the, on the estimated income of the individuals and his, and his wealth in any form of property. Many sections of the wealthier classes obtained exception from this tax. <laughs> but there was no escape from the peasants. Indeed, this tax um, hindered the development of agriculture in France, for as soon as uh, a peasant appeared to be more prosperous, his um, tally was 
immediately raised. Talking about his tax was uh, immediately raised. There was no incentive what, uh, uh, whether to improve uh, uh, cultivation or whatsoever. Then there was the cap. Uh, there was the uh, the the uh, capitation or poll tax upon the head of each household. Now the peasantry were strictly assessed by the tax officials, but the nobles obtained so many exception, exemptions uh, that while the uh, the peasantry were paying eight times their fare, while the peasantry were paying eight times their fare, their their fair share, the nobility were paying only one eight. Now the same situation applied uh, to the vintium, uh, a tax on all property. Now here again, both the nobility and the clergy gained wild, wide exemption uh, while the peasants had to pay. Now the, uh, the, the victim tax was more or uh, was more than the 20th, uh, which is uh, which. Uh, which its names uh, with with its names implies, it was in fact about one sixth of incomes. The unfairness of the burden, which uh, which all this meant for the peasantry, will be understood when it is realized that these three state uh, taxes alone deprived the peasant of more than half his yearly income. In many parts of France, these direct taxes were collected by certain peasants themselves in each parish, and they were uh, answerable to the government officials. Under the system they, they, uh, then existing, uh, they, they were chosen. They were chosen by their own neighbors, and such was the reluctance of anyone to undertake the task. They had to be forced to do it. Now the peasant uh, collectors had the greatest difficulty in obtaining the sums demanded for their neighbors constantly protested poverty and inability to pay. If they failed to obtain the required sum, they either had to make up the deficiency themselves or go to the prison. Immediately before 1789, there were many hundreds of uh, these peasants uh, collectors in the Gao. Now, having said that about the direct taxation, let's talk about the indirect taxation. Don't forget, we're still uh, under talk, looking at the conditions of French society before the revolution. Now, looking at the indirect taxation. Uh, but this indirect taxation was not the end of the taxation story. There were the indirect taxes of which the most notorious was the gabelle and the salt tax. I'll explain that. Now, every individual over eight years old was legally compelled to purchase at least seven pounds of salt a year and could be fined for not doing so. The individual was then taxed on the actual amount purchased. This state's uh, monopoly in the, so in the sale of salt led to the 
employment of 50,000 troops and officials to enforce it. It was forbidden to use a seawater for cooking, nor could a peasant feed his cattle in salt marshes or allow them to drink from salt springs. No wonder there was a widespread hatred of this tax and desperate effort, effort to evade it. Now, punishments for evasion were, uh, were, uh, were severe and were savage. In the year 1783, out of 11,000 arrests made, 6,600 were of children, and some authorities have estimated that for many years before the revolution, the annual imprisonment averaged 30,000 and 500 persons were hanged or sent to the galleys. Another reason for the harshness of this punishment was the method uh, by which the tax was commonly collected. The government gave this tax uh, to individuals who paid the government for the privilege and took a proportion of the proceeds of the tax. Now, these were known as tax farmers, and there were many cases of uh, revolting cruelty by the agents, uh, by the agents they employed who were entitled to enter the houses of the peasants at any time of the day or night and often ransacked them from top to bottom. One French writer, the father of, um, of one of the great uh, a figure of the revolution talking about Mirabeau uh, described how he had seen a tax official cut off the hand of a woman who clung to her cooking utensils which he was trying to seize because of her evasion of the taxes. No wonder many uh, victims of the revolutionary uh, guillotine were tax farmers. The peasants had to pay feudal dues to the uh, signor for the use of the latter meal, oven, or wine press. He was also liable to forced labor for the upkeep of roads. The covey, uh, that's uh, the, 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 when I say the upkeep of roads, I'm talking about the covey in, uh, uh, in France. Now, besides uh, this, imposition besides this imposition the landowner also demanded other feudal dues such as the hearth tax told to be paid for the use of local roads and bridges for the right of a peasant to take his herd of cattle through through the lord's estates and a tax to be paid when the peasants inherited property now, the Lord alone could possess floor meals, pigeon courts, big houses, and so on. He also had the right to appoint the judges and lawyers in case of any dispute between himself and the peasantry. Well, justice to the peasant was almost impossible in this feudal law court. Well, in the Middle Ages, when the feudal courts were set up, the Lord had uh, had at least lived on his estate and was expected to show concern for his 
tenant, but in the 18th century, he was very frequently an absentee landlord who lived in luxury in town or city and was not seen by his tenants from one year from one year's end to the other. The church also claimed from the peasants uh, the tithe, not quite a tenth uh, of his produce, as the name implies, but more frequently a fifteenth. In addition to all this, the peasantry uh, was the only class in France which could gain no exemption from military service in the militia. Uh, this was a six-year period of service and was detested. It is not surprising that many peasants gave up their land in despair and took to a brigandage, smuggling and poaching. Now, in these activities, uh, they were often given shelter and protection by sympathetic villagers. Tax collectors and game gamekeepers were murdered, and soldiers had constantly uh, to be used to suppress food riots. Now, all this add up to our imagination to a miserable picture, and yet the French peasant was not was probably better off and its counterpart in most of the European states, in Austria, in Russia, in Prussia. He was an outright serf, the, uh, the tutel of his lord. But serfdom affected only a remnant in France, and Louis XVI himself reduced it further by freeing the serfs on the royal domain. Now, the French peasant had certain definite legal rights and often gained supports from the lawyers of the countryside who had their own grievances against the nobility of the government. Now, it was this element of uh, legal rights uh, and independence which accounts in part of the peasant's desire for more independence, uh, which, on, uh, which only freedom from the unfair and crushing burden of taxation could give him. Now the peasants were neither sufficiently united nor sufficiently educated to produce a revolution themselves, but the importance of these grievances was that they were ready to become the allies of other discontented classes. Well, having talked about the peasantries, uh, let's talk about the bourgeoisie. Nearly all the leaders of the revolution were drawn from the numerical, numerically small class of the bourgeoisie, uh, which includes merchants, traders, industrialists, lawyers, doctors, and other professional groups. Now, the merchants and industrialists lived mainly in the town for the feudal conditions of the countryside and the heavy taxation of the land had prevented them from purchasing country uh, country estates. In the reign of Louis XVI from 1774 to 1792, yes, I think I'm, yes, from 1774 to 1792, they were reasonably prosperous. They enjoyed many exemptions from taxation, though to their great annoyance, these exemptions were far greater 
for the nobility and clergy. They usually enjoyed exemption from service in the militia. They owned most of the non-agricultural wealth of the country, being also bankers, moneylenders, and the controller of the rich governing corporation of the town. With their wealth, they endowed town schools. Uh, where their sons received a good uh, received good education, but the bourgeoisie had serious causes for discontent. In the first place, uh, they were almost completely ex- excluded from the government of France. In other words, they had ev- they had very little political power, despite the fact that they were both wealthy and educated. Now, real political power was concentrated in the hands of the king. The Royal Council, that's a small section of the privileged nobility at, uh, at Versailles and in the, in the provinces. Now, the intendants or royal officials, we'll be talking about that later on, uh, there was also no prospect of uh, promotion for the bourgeoisie class, for the bourgeoisie uh, uh, class in the French army. Uh, where the commissioned ranks were the, uh, were preserved for only for the nobility. Now it is no wonder, therefore, that the writing of those great thinkers of the 18th century who challenged their existing orders, such as Rousseau and Voltaire, found considerable favor with this class. Now, besides political grievances, the merchants and the industrialists had economic grievances. The finances of the government went from bad to worse in the reign of Louis XVI. The cost of France's uh, assistance to the Americans in the War of Independence, that was between uh, 1775 to 1783. The blatant extravagance and luxury of the court at uh, Versailles and bad financial management led to a situation in which the expenses of the government far exceeded its income. The government tried to meet the situation by raising huge loans from the nobility, uh, the bourgeoisie, and even from the church. This meant a vast increase in the national debt, and as things became worse, a growing uncertainty among the bourgeoisie as to whether they would ever recover their money. Above all, they needed a government whose credit was sound. Yet, long before 1789, France was bankrupt. And amidst all the financial chaos, the nobility clung obstinately uh, to the exemption from taxation. If France had possessed an expanding empire, perhaps the bourgeoisie would have been less discontented, but India and Canada had been lost to Great Britain in the Seven Years' War. That was between 1756 and uh, uh, between 1756 to 1763. Well, haven't said a little about that. Let's talk about the nobility now. A striking feature of French society before the revolution was the absence of any real unity among the wealthy and privileged. The bourgeoisie envied and detested the nobility, 
which in its turn was seriously divided against itself. There were three main divisions of the nobility, the great nobility, the lesser nobility, and the nobility of the rope. The great nobility comprised about 1,000 families who owned the largest and wealthiest landed estates in France. They had been accorded privileges which placed them above all other classes in the state. The highest commander in the army and the navy were reserved for them, and they alone could represent France abroad as ambassadors. The most influential amongst them were the court nobles at Versailles, who strongly resisted all attempts to end their exemptions from taxation and were implacably determined to maintain their privileges. Now from these uh, were drawn the absentee lords, that is, the nobles who left their landed estates in the hands of uh, bailiffs and went to live at uh, Versailles, Paris, or other town centers. The lesser nobility uh, comprised about 99,000 families. Now, don't forget we spoke about the greater, the great nobility. There was about 1,000 families who owned largest and wealthiest landed estates in France. Now we're talking about the lesser nobility comp that, that comprised of about 99,000 families. Their country estates were only just sufficient to maintain them and they could not have afforded the luxuries of absenteeism and the life of Versailles even, in the great even if the great nobility had been willing to receive them into their select, uh, even their select society. Like the bourgeoisie, the lesser nobility had very little political power in the provinces, where the king's uh, officer, officers, the intendants, were all powerful. Moreover, all their sons inherited noble titles, and this led to the existence of more nobles than, uh, than could possibly live up uh, for their grandeur uh, grand pretensions. Now, it is not surprising, therefore, that we find a number of supporters of the revolution in this class, for they envied the greater nobilities a privilege and were frustrated by their own exclusion from the higher, soci from the higher social and political life of the times. Now, the nobility of the rope, that's the, the third, don't forget we have the great nobility, the lesser nobility, and the nobility of the robe. Now the nobility of the robe were those who had been given little who had been who had been given titles as a reward for their services to the state. This was only section this was only the section of the nobility who could claim that they held their titles on merit alone. Yet they were unable to enjoy the privileges of the great nobility, while at the same time they d despised the rather uh, ramshackle and pretentious lesser nobility. The nobility was thus divided against itself long before revolution began. Moreover, it was much more concerned 
with its own sectional interest than the badly needed reform of the country of the whole country now real and effective pressure for change could therefore only come from other classes namely the bourgeoisie and its peasant allies now we'll talk about the church uh, and after talking about the church we'll talk about the army and also we'll talk about uh, the government of france and many more we'll go on a break and be back shortly well it's still 